Luke chapter 16. Last week, we looked at some secrets to maintaining spiritual joy. Weren't really secrets because they're explicitly laid out in Scripture, I suppose. But we looked at Paul in the book of Philippians, and uh, Paul was able to maintain joy in the midst of suffering. In fact, wrote a letter which emphasized rejoicing while he was bound to Roman guards. And so he was under house arrest in Rome. He pens this letter and talks about rejoicing. And what we saw from Paul is that he was able to maintain his joy because he was first and foremost surrendered to Jesus Christ. He had that surrendered life. He also participated in selfless labor, serving the church. And we also saw that he had a spiritual longing. That is, he had an attitude that looked forward to either he going to be with Christ or Christ returning to take him uh, to be with him. He had an eternal perspective. He had a spiritual priority. And that's what enabled him to handle suffering in this life. This morning, we're going to deal with a related theme But we're going to see this in the teachings of Jesus Christ. What we find throughout Christ's earthly ministry and oftentimes in his parables is he continually reminds us that we must maintain an eternal perspective. That is, he would have us understand that there's much more than this temporary earthly life. There is, in fact, an eternity that awaits us, an eternity that promises life in the presence of God. A life void of sickness and pain and suffering. He would have us continually reminded that there is an eternity awaiting us that makes even the joys of this life pale in comparison. This theme undergirds many of Christ's parables. So he, he gives us a parable, for instance, in Luke 16 about the dishonest manager. Don't want to go into detail about that, but simply say that that parable was meant to urge us to use what was earthly and temporary to secure for us a heavenly and eternal future. He gives a parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. And remember that story, you're very familiar with it. We have a man who forgoes uh, really relationship with his father and trades that for the temporary pleasures and possessions of a life given over to his own passions. We see in the parable of the rich fool in Luke 12, the story of a man who comes upon some riches. So what he does is he tears down his barns and he builds new ones and he just hoards all of his riches, counting them as his security with no thought about eternity. And then what does the parable say? Eventually the Lord in demands of him his soul and he's completely unprepared. Each of those parables are meant to teach us that there is eternity waiting and we need to hold loosely to the things of this life and have a, again, eternal perspective in spiritual priority. And Jesus sums that up very well in Matthew 6 when he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So yeah, we live here. We must live here in this life. But we are to do it living now for eternity. Such hope and anticipation will have an indelible impact on the way we live here. You should be able to see this in the life of a Christian. Our perspective, our priorities, our attitude, our actions, our affections, everything then is uh, affected by this eternal perspective and spiritual priority. 
This morning, we're going to consider another related theme to all of this, which consistently appears in the teachings of Jesus and the apostles. The fact is the world, in its godlessness, has a tendency to take all that is divine and upend it. The world, and what I mean by that is our culture, society, has a tendency to pervert or distort or completely reverse all that God has designed. Everything God values, the world tends to hate. Everything God hates, the world tends to love. All that God calls good, the world seems to call evil. All that God calls evil, the world calls good. All whom the Lord exalts, the world debases. All whom God views as an abomination, the world exalts. As a result, God's people witness and experience what great injustice in this world, as we talked about in the equip class. We see God blasphemed all around us. We see God's people persecuted. We see divine morality rejected. Meanwhile, it appears that those who perpetuate such things are the ones who prosper. That seems to be our experience in this life. Such individuals seem to be lauded and elevated in the the world's eyes. We see this very clearly in society all around us present day as it becomes increasingly secular and godless. So how should we understand all that? I mean, has God's plan failed? God's desire for a society ruled by righteousness and justice, has that plan been foiled? Will God's people ever experience justice? Will the ungodly ever receive a just punishment due their deeds? This type of cry has been the cry of God's people from the beginning. Whether you look at the prophets, whether you look at the psalmists, we dealt with that when we went through the book of Habakkuk together. These questions bring us again to another repeated theme in Christ's teachings. Not only does he continually emphasize the need to seek the heavenly and eternal over the earthly and temporary, but he also assures us that a day is coming when all of creation will experience what we're going to call a divine reversal. A divine reversal. This means that there's coming a day when God will set all things aright. All that is wrongly exalted will be torn down. All that is wrongly debased in the world will be exalted. The oppressed will be freed. The oppressors will be bound. Those who maintained an eternal perspective and a spiritual priority will be rewarded, and rebels will be judged. It's that sort of divine reversal that we see promised repeatedly in Jesus' teaching and especially think the Sermon on the Mount. Luke chapter 6, verse 21, Blessed are you who are hungry, what does it say? Now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. A reversal is going to happen. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. What is that? That's divine reversal. Jesus returns to that truth over and over again in his teachings. And again, we already referenced some of those parables. So Jesus continually speaks in terms of divine reversal. He looked forward to a time when God the Father would set all things aright, when God's rule and God's holiness would reign supreme and all who have been faithful to him would be honored. And every godless philosophy, frankly, and every sinful rebel will be destroyed. The truth of the coming divine reversal is what encouraged his disciples. The reality that God was going to return and set all things aright is what encouraged his disciples to, what, deny themselves 
and to give their lives in service to others is what sustained them to labor for Jesus in the midst of hostility. It's what enabled them to bear hostility and to do so with meekness without lashing back. It's what enabled them to bear suffering with grace. It's what enabled them to deal with their opponents with gentleness. It was the promise of the coming divine reversal, which encouraged them to maintain a heavenly and eternal perspective while living an earthly life, and the same should be true for all of us. This life is temporary. The injustice and oppression and persecution that we may experience here is only for a time. A greater day is coming when God will set all things aright, so we live in anticipation of that. And that has real impact on how we live. So we work diligently to ensure that we're found ready and faithful when he returns. So today we're going to look at a story in which Jesus explicitly sets forth that reality, the reality of a coming divine reversal. This is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, Luke 16, starting in verse 19. Of all Jesus' parables, this one most vividly teaches the need for an eternal perspective in light of the coming divine reversal. There's a rich man in this parable, as we're going to see. He's a grave example of one who failed to have an eternal perspective. He's the one who lived life for all that he could get out of it. And as we're going to see, he paid quite a price. Luke chapter 16, verse 19 through 31. Let's read it. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And so there's two main characters in Jesus' story, his parable here. First of all, there's a rich man. This is a rich man who, uh, his riches are indicated by, first of all, the clothing that's mentioned here. It says he was clothed in purple and fine linen. What what is that? Purple. Well, I mean, that that was a, a, a color speaking of royalty. The reason it was associated with royalty is because to get that purple dye was quite a task. It was very labor-intensive. You would actually have to harvest uh, uh, snails, a certain breed of snail, and you would either have to, don't laugh, you would either have to milk the snail. That's a weird imagery. Uh, You either have to milk the snail, which was labor-intensive, or you'd have to crush the snails in order to get 
uh, the uh, mucus, which had a purple color to it, in order to make this dye. One source says that 12,000 of those snails would yield no more than 1.4 grams of pure dye of purple, enough to cover only the trim of a single garment. And so when Jesus in his story uh, portrays this man as wearing a purple robe, basically what he's saying is that he's living like a king. He's living like a king. He is a royal robe. That's the idea. And then it says there of this rich man that's living like a king, underneath the purple, he had fine linen. Again, fine linen is the uh, clothing of those who are rich or even royalty. In Genesis chapter 41, when Pharaoh seeks to exalt Joseph, it says that he took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. Signet ring, gold chain, and fine linen. Again, this is a story. These are individuals that Jesus has uh, uh, presented to us. These are not people who actually lived, but Christ is making a point. And what is it? Here's a man living like a king. It goes on, it says he feasted sumptuously every day. Each and every day was extravagant. A, a, a sumptuous meal at every sitting, not having to wait for special occasions, having servants serving him. That's the picture. This is a man who is astonishingly rich. The best clothes, the best food, nonstop extravagance. You, we would say this guy is filthy rich. He's filthy rich. The best of the best. And he frankly paraded it around. He's got his, his royal robe on for all to see like a proud peacock. He quite literally, again, lived like a king. So Jesus presents the rich man. Then in contrast, in verse 20, look at it. And at his gate, there was laid a poor man named Lazarus. He's covered with sores. He's hoping to be fed with just the crumbs that fall from the master's table, just like a dog might. Moreover, even the dogs came, it says, came and licked his sores. The gate of the rich man's estate, outside of the gate, was a man named Lazarus. Poor. Not only was he poor, but he was sick, it says. He had some debilitating condition which made it so that he couldn't even walk to put himself at the gate of the rich man. It says there in verse 20, and at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus. And it seems as if the indication being that probably every day he had some come and help him and they would just lay him there at the gates. Not only this, but it says that he had sores all over his body. He was poor. He was malnourished. He was ulcer stricken. And there he lay day in and day out, wishing that he could even just eat the scraps from the rich man's table. To make this even sadder, it says, moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, I don't know if you have a dog. I don't know if you're a cat person, whether you're a dog person. But, you know, we, uh, if you were here on Halloween, you would have saw BJ here. And she had like a little backpack. In, where's BJ? There she is. A little backpack. And in her backpack, she had a little dog in her backpack, named Annie. And Annie, frankly, lives a pretty good life. Right, BJ? Annie lives a pretty good life. We have a dog, and our dog is quite spoiled as well. In fact, our dog is so spoiled that when our dog doesn't want to eat her food, my wife shreds cheese, puts a shredded cheese on my dog's bowl, and puts it in the microwave. 
That's how spoiled our dog is. And you probably have stories like that too. That's not the type of dog we're dealing with here. The Jews did not keep dogs as pets. This is not cute, cuddly man's best friend. These are dirty, mangy, scavenging dogs. Coming and licking the sores off of Lazarus. Why? This is gross, I understand. They're just frankly enjoying the pus that's oozing out of the sores of Lazarus' body. This is the picture that Christ wants us to see. Lazarus too weak even to fend them off. Here's a contrast. A man who had everything that money could buy. A man who begged for his necessities. A man who feasted every day. A man who starved every day. A man who is covered with king-like clothing. A man who's covered with oozing bodily sores. A man who would have been greatly honored by society. A man who is frankly victimized by and forgotten by society. A man who lived within the gates and a man who was cast outside the gates. Jesus intends this contrast to be as great as possible. One man got everything he could out of this life, while the other seemed to get nothing from this life. So, is that it then? Is that the lesson? Get as much as you can out of this life, because nobody's going to help you. Is that the lesson? Claw and clamor your way to the top because apparently that guy inside the gates is far better off than the guy outside the gate. So do what that rich guy did so you can get as much as you can of this life. Is that the moral of the story? Is the purpose of this story to kind of lead to some type of cultural Marxism? Hey, every human relationship is based upon the idea of oppression. And so we need to be out there and we need to overthrow the oppressor and exalt the oppressed. Is that the story here? No. The purpose of Jesus' parable frankly, is simply to encourage us to maintain an eternal perspective in light of a coming divine reversal. Look in verse 22. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. We're already starting to see a divine reversal, aren't we? Notice there's no mention of a burial for the poor man. The poor man died And that's it. I mean, that's the end of his earthly story. The poor man died. No mention of a burial. He died without without fanfare, without care. But then it says he's carried to Abraham's side by the angels. The angels attend to his soul. No one's going to attend to his body. No one's going to give him a, a good burial. But then the angels attend to his soul, bringing him to heaven and uniting him with the patriarch Abraham whereas he was once reluctantly carried to the gate by those who begrudgingly gave charity, now he's lovingly carried by angels to the side of Abraham. Whereas he was once laid outside a gate of a palace where he was unwelcomed, he's now ushered into the presence of Abraham like an honored guest. Look in verse 22 again. The poor man died, was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. The rich man also died. Notice that At this moment, the differences of earthly status are obliterated. The contrast between the rich man and the poor man couldn't be greater, but then guess what? They both died. The poor man died, but the rich man died also. The poor man died, the rich man died. Proverbs 22.2 says, The rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. There's no distinction there. They both die. Even in the rich man's death, however, we do see him somewhat honored. At least his burial is mentioned, unlike the poor man. He's got a proper burial. 
one which would have featured all the elements of a stately funeral. I'm sure he had all of his affairs in order. But then take notice of how Jesus is telling this story. Lazarus died. That's the poor man. No one took notice. The rich man died, and there's a burial. There's a funeral. However, as Jesus tells the story, it's the death of Lazarus that features the involvement of angels and Abraham. He is the one ushered into heaven by angels. However, Jesus says of the rich man only that, uh, oh, he also died and was buried. There we see the reversal beginning. No heavenly fanfare. There was earthly fanfare, but no heavenly fanfare. No spiritual significance at all. We also see Jesus honoring the poor man in the story uh, simply by the fact that, uh, okay, what's the poor man's name? Tell me, what is the poor man's name? What's the rich man's name? Jesus doesn't even bother naming the rich man, but we know the poor man's name. That's Lazarus. The rich man who had built a name for himself during his earthly life is now just a nameless character in Jesus' story. Lazarus, who was unknown and disregarded in life, is now the guest of honor. This is Lazarus. Angels bringing Lazarus to the bosom of Abraham. But the contrast continues in verse 23. It says, And in Hades, that's in hell, being in torment, he, the rich man, lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And by the way, far off is intended there. Uh... Lazarus is in the bosom of Abraham, and the rich man is nowhere near Abraham. Divine reversal indeed. The rich man finds himself in hell, and it says he's in torment. For the sake of the story, Jesus allows this character to be able to converse with Abraham. The character in the story is able to see, basically we could say, from from hell to heaven, what, is he, what does he see? Again, Abraham far off. To be with Abraham, I mean, that's the highest honor. I mean, the idea is for a Jew that when I die, I'm going to go to be with my fathers. I'm going to be there, a man of faith. I'm going to be there with faithful Abraham. That was uh, to be looked forward to, and that was obviously a great honor. To be in heaven was to be with Abraham. But this privilege, again, was not for the rich man. It was for Lazarus. The rich man see this just from afar off. He's just an observer. He's in torment. And so he cries out, verse 24, look at it. It says, he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. This is absolutely stunning. Even in death, this rich man thinks that the social pecking order which he so enjoyed in life stands in the eternal state. Abraham, send Lazarus to serve me. (laughs) Just send him to dip his end of his finger in water and to bring me relief. He still doesn't get it. Father Abraham, because I'm father, you know that I'm a faithful Jew. I'm a child of the kingdom. And so send this guy to serve me. This reminds me of Jesus in Matthew 8, verse 11, when he warned, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What is that? That is, those who assume they are a shoe-in into the kingdom, 
those who are the actual descendants of Abraham, those who think they are entitled to eternal life, entitled to being in the presence of the Father, are going to have a rude awakening. Instead, what? Men and women, Gentiles from other nations, uh, all those who simply believe by faith, they are the ones who are going to be in the presence of Abraham. So the rich man has died, and now he experiences that rude awakening. Again, that social pecking order that he experienced in life has been completely reversed. But then we find the key verse of the entire parable. Abraham responds to the rich man's plea in verse 25. What does he say? But Abraham said, child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things. And Lazarus, in like manner, bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Jesus is telling a parable, giving us a glimpse of eternity to illustrate the divine reversal that's coming. Listen, you got everything you could get out of life. You have your reward. I mean, you clamored and you clawed through society trying to get status and prestige and money. You fulfilled your passions and you were satisfied uh, in that life. So guess what? You will not be comforted and satisfied in the next. Lazarus, on the other hand, he suffered, and apparently he maintained his faith even through all of that because he here is now reunited with faithful Abraham. And he suffered in life, and now he's the one that's going to be comforted. This is the Sermon on the Mount being played out before our eyes. You lived without an eternal perspective. That's as what Abraham is saying. You gained what you could out of the world, and in the process, lost your own soul. So now, in the afterlife, the rich man's humbled, Lazarus is exalted, divine reversal has taken place, the poor man suffered, Lazarus suffered, he was ignored, he was neglected, now he's comforted. Rich man, however, you were proud, you were exalted, you were living in the lap of luxury, now you are in anguish. But then, unlike any other parable, this one reveals just how God will reward the just and punish the guilty. This is uncomfortable, I understand. The rest of the sermon may be uncomfortable for you. But this parable gives us a glimpse into the eternal state, including not just heaven, but hell. You understand that Jesus is that character in the New Testament that spoke the most about hell. Mark 9.43, he said, If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than two hands going to hell, to the unquenchable fire. That's a warning from Christ. Hell is a real place, and there is real torment. Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew 23, 33, He warns the hypocrites, You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Hell is a reality, just as heaven is a reality. And so here we find the rich man suffering in hell. So the remainder of our time together, we just want to look at some of what Jesus says about hell. First of all, he says it's insufferable. There it says of the rich man. Now, now remember, this is Jesus telling the story here. And he, he says that this rich man is suffering what, in verse 24, in the anguish, anguish in the flame. 
then Abraham responds and says that Lazarus is now being comforted, but you are in anguish. It appears from the teachings of Christ that hell is a place of eternal conscious punishment. A place of eternal conscious punishment. We could say a place of eternal conscious punishment for the wicked. Matthew 25, 30. In another parable, he says, Cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 25, looking forward to the judgment of Christ, it says, Then he will say to those on his left, Apart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Mark chapter 9, verse 43, says, If your hand caused you to sin, cut it off. We already saw that. Uh, it's better to enter life crippled than to go to hell and to suffer the unquenchable fire. So this text indicates by the testimony of the rich man, I'm in anguish in the flame, and also the confirmation by Abraham, you are in anguish, that this is a warning to avoid a place of conscious, eternal suffering. The book of Revelation describes the torment in hell repeatedly. Revelation 14 says, Another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast in its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. And you could read also in Revelation 19.20, Revelation 20, verse 15. We won't do it for the sake of time. We may not be able to definitively describe what hell is. I mean, this is a, it's a reality, but it's a spiritual reality. And with such things, we are limited to just analogical knowledge. We can only describe these things with the language and the vocabulary that we have. So we can't fully understand what this is. But one thing we do know is that Christ himself warned This is a place of anguish and torment to be avoided. Hell is a place of eternal torment for those who are lost. It's to be avoided. How? By repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because for those who believe in Christ, there is no more condemnation. Through faith in Christ, we are saved from the wrath which is to come. So we find that hell is, first and foremost, insufferable. You you, you cannot rear up under the pain and suffering of hell. Next of all, we see in verse 25 that hell is irreversible. It's irreversible. Verse 25, Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he's comforted and you are in anguish. We see that divine reversal stated explicitly. But we see that this rich man's pleas really fall on deaf ears. He wants somebody to cross over from here to there. And Abraham says, no, that's an impossibility. That can't happen. But the divine reversal is explicit. We see elsewhere, like Matthew chapter 6, verse 2, says, thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. And what did Jesus say repeatedly uh, about the hypocrites? He says, those who get praise from others on earth, it says they have received their reward. What does he mean by that? Saying those hypocrites who, who just serve or uh, work to get praise from others or earthly reward, uh, if, if that's your object, if that's your purpose, 
If that's what, what drives you, and then you receive that earthly praise and reward, then that's it. That's all you're getting. I mean, get as much as you can because you're not getting anything in eternity. In fact, there's going to be suffering and anguish there. So elsewhere, Matthew 6, verse 5, When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward. That's it. No eternal life, no eternity in the presence of God. Instead, what? You've traded that for just earthly praise. You've traded that for earthly comfort. They have their reward. That's the idea. So the rich man's pleas fall on deaf ears because heaven and hell are eternal. Abraham simply states the cause. Oh, no, no. Remember? You can't come over here because you were already rewarded in your earthly life. You lived in comfort. You lived in the lap of luxury. You got that earthly praise. You had that earthly status. Remember? You traded the eternal for the temporary. The current state in which the rich man found himself would be his condition forever. No crossing over. No more chances after death. God, frankly, has provided graciously time now for repentance and faith. If you have here and you have a Catholic background and you have hope of a purgatory, that's not scriptural. There is no purgatory. There is no second chance. There is no hope that your relatives can pray you out of purgatory. There's no such thing scripturally. God has given us this life and this life only than to choose repentance and faith. Once we are ushered into eternity, that's it. There is no crossing over. Today, frankly, is the day of salvation. When death occurs, there is no more opportunity. We all are very much standing on that threshold of eternity. And by the way, nobody here this morning knows how much time they have. We assume we have quite a while, but you don't know. We, we all very much at any moment are on the threshold of eternity. And once we die, there is no second chance. Verse 26, besides all this, between us and you, there's a great chasm that has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to, uh, from, from here to you may not be able. Even if we wanted to, we can't. This is God's design. They may not, none cross from there to us. You can't go from one direction to the other. You can't go from heaven to hell. You can't go from hell to heaven. This is it. You say, well, is that merciful? Is that gracious of God? Yes, because he gives us an entire life. Why? Because he's not willing that any would perish. And so he withholds his wrath and he gives us a whole lifetime. If you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian and you keep delaying and delaying and delaying and delaying, that this is a warning. You don't know how long you have. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter how young you are. You don't know what is going to happen. And so get your heart right with God. I'll get serious about the faith when I get older. Maybe I'll get baptized at some point in the future. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll deal with that at some point once I, you know, take care of all the passions and all the experiences I want to have. Then I'll get serious about spiritual things. Are you serious? You don't know how much time you have. There's, there's eternal consequences on the line here. It's impossible for one to pass from, from one to the other. The state we find ourselves in then when we die is irreversible. It's either eternal punishment or eternal life. Matthew 25, verse 41, Jesus speaking of a coming judgment. We've already touched on this, but he says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Hell is insufferable. Hell is irreversible. And hell is eternal. Insufferable, irreversible, eternal 
And then lastly, hell is not only insufferable and irreversible and eternal, but thankfully by the grace of God is avoidable. It's avoidable. Look at verse 27. He said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into his place, this place of torment. And notice here the rich man. He says, and he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him. Who's, who's the him? That's Lazarus. He still wants Lazarus to be his errand boy. He's still going to serve him. Still hasn't gotten it. If he can't come and, and, and satisfy me by bringing me water, then just send him to warn my brothers. In verse 29, but Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. They've got the scriptures. They've got God's revelation. It's clear. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Now, remember, this is Jesus telling the story. Very deliberately using this as the request. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So Abraham refuses the request on the grounds that his brothers already have the scriptures. They already have divine revelation. The scriptures testify to God's existence. The scriptures testify to the reality of life after death. The scriptures already testify to the way to avoid such punishment. Repent of your sin and follow Christ. His brothers already have everything they need to avoid anguish in hell. Remember in Luke chapter 24 when Jesus is walking with the disciples post-resurrection? And it says that he opened the scriptures and he showed them everything written about him in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. Everything's already there. If you have ears to hear and eyes to see, you will be able to discern in the scriptures the way to avoid hell. But I'm surmising that the rich man's brothers were a lot like the rich man, blinded by their own earthly comforts and desire for earthly praise and so on. They're not going to see it, but they have everything they need, and they are culpable and accountable for the revelation they have. Well, the rich man's convinced that if the brothers, although they have Scripture, if they could just see a miraculous sign, If someone could go from the dead, if Lazarus could go and say, I was dead, now I'm alive, look at this miracle, I'm risen from the dead, okay, well, they could see that happen, then they would believe. Well, we know for two reasons that's not going to happen. First, we know it's not going to happen because Jesus rises from the dead, and many still do not believe. But what else do we know? There's another character in the New Testament who does die and does come back, And what is his name? Lazarus. Not the same Lazarus. Because this Lazarus is real. And Jesus raises him from the dead. And what happens? Many believe because he's raised from the dead, but those Jews who were confirmed in their hypocrisy and the rejection of Jesus did not believe. In fact, what does the Bible say? They actually tried to kill Lazarus. They tried to kill the witness to the reality uh, that Christ is the Son of God and that salvation is only through His name. So will they believe? No. They're confirmed in their rejection. So Abraham responds, if their heart is hardened against the Word of God and what it teaches about repentance and submission to God, then no sign will convince them otherwise. Even a resurrection from the dead would not be enough. Such is the condition of the hard heart of the rebel. 
Again, we know that to be true because of Christ's resurrection and the resurrection of Lazarus. Matthew 12, 38, some of the scribes and Pharisees answered Jesus saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But Jesus answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. What's the sign of the prophet Jonah? For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That's the sign you're going to get. I'm going to die. I'm going to be buried. I'm going to rise again. That's the only sign you're going to get. And what do we know? Even with that sign, they didn't believe. What's their response? Unbelief confirmed in their rebellion. They wouldn't believe. Even after the resurrection of Jesus, what happened? The Jews, the hypocrites, conspired with the guards of the tomb, remember? To lie and to cover up the reality of Christ's resurrection. So, hell is avoidable. How? By responding to the revelation that you and I already have. We have the scriptures. We have the word of God. We have the law and the prophets and more. We have the completed New Testament. We have the Gospels. We have revelation, clear revelation as to how to be saved. What is one of the immediate lessons then we learn from the story of the rich man? Well, the word of God carries the message of salvation. To neglect God's call to salvation through the scriptures has eternal consequences. Instead of accepting the call to salvation in the word to live in this life for this life and for what the world offers is to make a trade that has eternal consequences. So my question this morning, if you're here and you're not a Christian, what are you waiting for? Lord, give me some miraculous sign. God, speak to me in some audible voice. It's clear. Maybe some of you don't know it, but, or maybe subconsciously, waiting for some tragic life event to shake you out of your complacency, determined that maybe at some point future I'll get everything I can out of this life and then I'll get serious. The message here is that what we do in this life has eternal consequences in the next. We must receive what the Lord has revealed in his word regarding the way of salvation. Why? Because hell is insufferable and it's eternal and it is irreversible, yet it still remains avoidable. What does the scripture say? Romans chapter 10, verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Listen, I apologize to you, but you just heard that text, did you not? Very, very plain. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Okay, you've heard it. Guess what that means? You're now culpable for how you respond to this. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. God has given us a clear revelation as to how salvation uh, happens and how it is available to you. And so what? Hell is now avoidable. 
Acts 2.36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Maybe you're asking that question this morning. Okay, I get it. There's hell to be avoided. So what shall I do? And Peter responds, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So there it is. This a universal call. It's an open call. You are now responsible. I am responsible for how we respond to that salvation call. By faith in Jesus Christ, we're saved from the wrath of God. Instead of justice, we receive grace. Revelation 5 verse 8, but God shows his love for us that while... Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Hell is avoidable. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you say, well, loving God would not allow a hell to exist. Well, listen, it's entirely avoidable. He's a loving God. He's also a just God. And he's a holy God. And so all injustices will be uh, dealt with. There will be a divine reversal. And he will ultimately be glorified. So in conclusion, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, like many of Jesus' parables, is given in part to teach us what? The need for an eternal perspective. An eternal perspective on earth warns us of the truth of a future divine reversal. What does this eternal perspective look like? Well, receive what the Word of God says about sin and salvation. Repent and be saved. Give your life to Christ. We're just going to close with these words from Jesus. Luke chapter 9, verse 23. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. And so now having heard that word, if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, thank God for his grace in your life. Thank God that through Jesus you have been saved from the wrath to come. Thank God that for his forgiveness there is now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not according to our works, but according to his mercy. If you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, listen, this is not a hellfire and brimstone sermon uh, meant to uh, make you leave this place uh, uh, in some sort of state of depression and despondency. The point of this sermon is to help you see that grace and mercy is extended to you And God, in his love, has made a way of salvation, and it's through the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is all entirely avoidable. So what? Give your life to Christ. Give your life to Christ. Make that known publicly through baptism. Dear Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for Jesus Christ. Lord, the thought of hell is an awful reality. It's something that we don't like to think about, we don't like to talk about, and frankly, we probably don't preach about as much as we ought to. But Lord, uh, we see from the lips of Jesus affirming repeatedly that hell is a place of eternal torment and anguish to be avoided. 
So we see that there are eternal consequences on the line here, how we respond to the gospel. So for those of us who are Christians, Lord, we thank you that you saved us according to your grace and uh, your mercy. We thank you that you've saved us from the uh, eternal consequence of our sin, that Jesus Christ bore that penalty for us. And Lord, we pray this morning for those who are here who are not yet Christians. It doesn't matter whether they've been in church for some time, whether they've grown up in a Christian home. They have not yet received Jesus as Savior and Lord. I pray that you would uh, impress upon their hearts their need for salvation. We pray that uh, they would make their faith known through baptism uh, and that you would just continue to save souls, saving them from uh, the fires of hell and uh, promising them a time where they would be forever in your presence, comforted and fully satisfied. And then, Lord, as we think about the coming divine reversal, we pray that you would use that to help us endure uh, suffering in this life, whether it be the hostility of a, of a godless culture, whether it be suffering of our, as a consequence of our own sin, whether it be suffering as a consequence of our mortal frame as we suffer sickness and disease and weakness and so on. I pray you'd help us to uh, use this eternal perspective to help us endure these things in this life, looking forward to a time when you'll set all things aright. Uh, also, as we see injustice all around us, Help us to look forward to a time when you return and, re- and rule in justice and righteousness. So uh, I pray that this eternal perspective would help have practical import uh, in our lives as we seek to navigate life in this hostile world. I pray that you'd use this message in various ways. Uh, build up your people and draw sinners to yourself. And I pray that they could experience your love and, and mercy through Christ. Lord, we thank you for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.